Welcome to episode eight of the Givers Time podcast, the podcast that highlights the extraordinary members of our armed forces and their families. So welcome to the first episode of 2021. And to celebrate this, we've got ourselves an amazing guest. He joined the military at age 16 and spent 25 years in the army. He went on to become one of the first members of Help for Heroes. And uh, we are pleased to welcome Mark Elliott. So Mark, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Absolute pleasure, Alex. No problem at all. And, and on that note, I think I'll leave. You, you, summed, <laughs> you, summed, you summed it up pretty well. That's, that's the end of my life. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, we're only getting started right now. Only getting started. And of course, everyone joining alongside me is Scotty Derrick and Rupert Forrest. So thank you, chaps, for also joining, joining us. A pleasure. Yeah, great to be back. All right, Mark. So do you want to go and tell us what it was like as a 16-year-old joining the army? Mad. Um, <laughs> I think, well, I mean, bizarrely, I was never one of these people who sort of always dreamed of being a soldier and joining the army. and frankly couldn't think of anything worse. In those days, I, I you, you may not believe this, but, but I had fairly long hair, uh, <laughs> as, as was everybody in the 70s. Um, I wasn't particularly good at school. I didn't really understand why I needed to know Pythagoras's theorem, etc., uh, etc. Et um, I thoroughly enjoyed sport, uh, being outdoors. Um, and so when I left school at, at 16, uh, having had a decision with my teachers that I, why would I waste their time with, with A-levels? Um, it was going to waste both our time and I thought I could save them a bit of money. But in all fairness, in those days, you know, only the sort of top 10 percent did A-levels um, and the top 2 percent of them went on to uh, university. And the rest of us were told to uh, go and get a job. Um, <laughs> so um, as a 16 year old wandering the streets of Tunbridge Wells in Kent, um, <laughs> I accidentally walked past the army recruiting office um, and rather stupidly walked in to which <laughs> this ginormous beast um, clearly had been told that his recruiting figures for the guards was down um, and that I fitted the bill perfectly, <laughs> i.e. I was over six foot tall um, and not that bright. Um, so I left there, uh, I walked home. Um, and told my mum that I'd, I'd joined the army, um, to which she said, that's wonderful, dear, you'll get yourself a trade and, you know, hopefully you've joined a corps or, or something like that, to which I said, I, I know I, I appear to have joined the Grenadier Guards. Um, and as there's no swearing on, on this podcast, um, <laughs> I'll leave out the reaction. Um, but she wasn't best pleased that, that Mark here had an education and then was going to stand still for many years. Um, and so off, off I went because um, I was 16. I, I was very fortunate, and I actually mean this. Uh, there was some good bits to it. Um, I landed up at Infantry Junior Leaders Battalion in Shorncliffe, um, an absolutely incredible place. Um, but on day one, I walked in uh, to Waterloo Company into a, into a room, uh, and bumped into uh, a bunch who had joined the Irish Guards, Scots Guards, Welsh Guards, Grenadiers and Coldstream. All of us 16, most of us should have been in prison or, or Borstal. Um, 
but they grouped us together in a room of, of 30 um and that's where i was reborn but it was an incredible year uh the infantry junior leaders uh they taught military training obviously um but also education um but education that i thought was probably valuable as opposed to pythagoras's theorem understandable um, yeah um and so managed to succeed after that uh even got myself promoted to junior sergeant um i've never forgotten we were up in otterburn that godforsaken place uh, <laughs> I, I went back there it's quite funny i went back there uh, several times during my career and then when i got senior enough i remember the commanding officer say mr elliot we're, we're going to otterburn next year i ain't going <laughs> I, I beg your pardon, Mister. If I go there again, I'm PVRing. I'm just not. I'm not going there again. Anyway, I'm, the only place. Otterburn's the only place I've ever seen cows wear Gore-Tex jackets. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's I think horrendous. It, it's probably the last time I cried. Um, you know, <laughs> Otterburn was just a nightmare. But um, I was up there at 16 and they, they were beasting us 16-year-olds and, and the boys were fairly exhausted having done section attacks all, all day uh, and they were lying around and the sergeant said, right, Elliot, you take over the platoon, um, off you go. And stupidly, I, I jumped up, uh, desperately trying to be sarcastic, and said, right, come on, you lot, get on your feet. Uh, we're just going to smash this and no problem at all. Off we go. Bugger me, they did it. <laughs> and no one was more surprised than I was. And then I got hauled in and said, I had leadership qualities. And you go, dear God, um, is that all it took? Um, but I went from there. Uh, then you had to go to the guards depot, um, which yeah. really in the 70s was not a great place to, to be. Um, and so more... Um, tabbing up and down sand hills in two dress and ammo boots because and a gas mask um thankfully those days have, have long gone in the military um and then um all my friends were, were posted to their battalions in hong kong and cyprus and, and some wonderful places and i got posted to the first battalion grenadier guards which was um, literally out of the guards depot, turn right and 300 metres up the road. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was wonderful. Um, at the time, uh, my battalion uh, were in South Armagh, uh, having a pretty rough time. Uh, and then I spent really about 25 years spending my time in South Armagh, funnily enough, or not funnily enough. Um, but having done that, uh, I joined the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards um, and left the British Army 25 years later. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, well, I'm not going to let you sum it up that quickly. <laughs> you can't get away from us that quickly there. <laughs> I'm, I can already, I'm assuming, Scotty, you felt very similar there when you heard that he just got posted just down the road as someone who also was expecting to be taken to Hong Kong or Hawaii or somewhere. <laughs> that is right. And I'll just highlight this fact to Mark as well. I remember being, I was in Purbright in basic training. I remember just about to leave and they said, right, fill out the posting preference. This is where you get a chance to apply for yeah. a posting. I thought this is great. Someone's now going to listen to us. So I put three choices, Cyprus, 
Germany or Canada, and I was delighted with Catherick. <laughs> <laughs> I've all, I, I mean, if only then, you know, we we knew what we knew now that that actually you should have put Catrick, Catrick, and Catrick, and you'd have landed up nicely in Hong Kong. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> every continent, Hawaii. Um, he'll probably tell you himself. I landed up. I did. Um, so I was lucky enough to go to Berlin. Um, fairly sharp. So Berlin. Um, for those, um, obviously, no one on the current call, but those listening in, Berlin w was surrounded um, by the Russians, East Germans. So you have West Berlin. Uh, that was inside East Berlin, that was inside East Germany, um, and completely separated from the West. Um, so we, we did a lot of training and things, but there was no point really in training because you were already surrounded. The last <laughs> people that, that the Russians were going to take out w was West Berlin. Um, so, so actually, I've just, oh, I've just got to be careful on swearing. Um, so I spent a good two and a half years drunk um so i i was a guardsman in berlin surrounded booze was cheap um i had a well of a time guarded rudolf hess went out on the grunewald training you did the train guard and and things like that very it's strange similar. stuff that... it's very similar to what um rupert and david was explaining was that about the same time you were there no not not the drunken yeah. part but was that about... <laughs> When yeah, well, Rupert was there and um, from 45 onwards, <laughs> David must have been from the mid-60s. But um, you were probably going to be there at the same time, weren't you, Rupert? Yeah, I mean, I was there. Oh, God. So I got married there. So that was um, not until it was our sort of first married posting. Wow. And it was amazing because we still had uh, the Putzfrau system. Were you married there, Mark? No, no, good God, no. If I'd have been married then, I'd have been divorced fairly quickly. But yeah, <laughs> one thing, knowing now that Rupert was actually in Berlin as a pad, God, did we hate the pads. <laughs> they, so not only did they get a hell of a lot of LOA, they also got a thing called Frizz. Yeah. So if you can imagine this city um, is surrounded, they had to have stocks of food. I mean, vast underground stocks of food. But even in those days, they had things called run-out dates on food. So what they used to do was give it out to the pads. So the pads would suddenly write this list, you know, I want to eat rump steak for seven days. All right, there's your rump steak. And our singlies in the block were still eating army <laughs> catering corps with delivery. And the pads got loads of... I'm sorry. We've gone off on one only because my, my hatred of pads in Berlin. <laughs> well, well as, as one of the hated many, I mean, it wasn't quite that easy because, you know, you'd order your rump steak and you'd have to pay a Deutschmark or something, which was about 20 oh, yeah, yeah. or 30p. Yeah, actually, but, but quite often you'd get a leg of lamb back or something. Oh, yeah, my and, God. And they wouldn't yeah. have any rump steak. I mean, it was, I, it was I think, yeah, It was really I tough. Think, <laughs> I can feel your pain from here, Rupert. <laughs> and was that about the same time, though, guys? Was it? Uh, I went there b 79, came back in 81. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I was a bit after you. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
But well, it was looked in that wonderful barracks in Purbright, 300 metres down the road from your depot as well, which yeah. for, for a, a jock regiment was quite frightening because you had you could hear these guards, salt majors, bellowing at people all day because yeah, I think you ran the drill courses there for the army as well. Well, the all arms drill wing was just down the road. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, so you, you could spend your day the wandering yeah. around barracks yeah. and doing stuff and in the distance you could hear this a squad <laughs> everyone getting ready to protect her majesty on the drill square all good um, fun. the yeah. best courses i've ever done was the junior and senior all yeah. arms drill uh, courses in purbright yeah. my goodness did my liver get a right kick in well it was quite <laughs> funny because later on in life several friends of mine became the rsm of the all arms drill wing um, so I always made sure that I got an invite down to, to your passing out parades uh, yes. and just stood on the square watching you lot suffer uh, and then going to the bar and then you all had to buy the drinks. It was a great day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, 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 Mark, moving on from the horrors of Berlin, I'm assuming that yeah. it sounds like it was phew, a hard old time. Where did you go to next then? Well, when do... we got we got sent back, and this is sort of sums up my military career of, of dumps. Um, I got sent back <laughs> to cavalry barracks in Hounslow, um, which really hadn't seen any renovation since probably about 1856. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, even in our, our rooms, our bunks, you, you have posts down the middle of the room uh, where you tied up your horse. I mean, it was it was just bizarre. Um, but there it, it was back to uh, public duties um, and then off to South Armagh um, for my first tour. Um, so that was uh, Deepest of Joys, Cross McGlen for eight months. Um, and, uh, and literally, that's, that's the only place in 25 years, every single one of my tours, including a three-year tour, which we'll discuss later, uh, was South Armagh. So I, I got to know South Armagh pretty well. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I, I went back. Uh, we'll talk about it later. I went back and I, I spent three years in, in Portadown. Um, but in those days, Cross McGlen really was not a nice place to be. Bandit um, country. Yeah. Um, Lots of air miles. Lot, well, yeah, only if they <laughs> ever fly the bloody helicopters. If not, you were, you were tabbing. But you kind of got to remember, you know, and people forget, you know, A, it, it, you know, they, it always annoys me when people call it, you know, oh, Northern Ireland, the Troubles. But they weren't Troubles. It was a war. Uh, <laughs> they, they didn't want to call it the war because it was part of the United Kingdom. It was a war, uh, and it'd always be a war, and people got injured and killed, uh, and we lost um, one of our, well, not one of our guys, he was a private or Corporal Tabner who um, was coming down and, and standing in for us um, as one of, one of the bricks was on... Um, on leave and, and he came from the Devon and Dorsets and um, he entered the square uh, and literally um, I say funnily enough I don't mean it as in ha ha but it was on CCTV um, you could see him looking at the car he realized it was down and one of the buggers just pressed it and, and blew him up 
Um, and I remember going out on the ground and one of the other um, platoons was coming in. Um, and it was the first time, I think, you realise that irrespective of all the training you'd done, um, however professional you are, whatever regiment or corps you're in, if, if the buggers want to get you, that's exactly what they're going to do. Uh, and that's a really hard lesson for a, um, an 18-year-old um, that actually you can do everything right. Um, but if they're going to get you, they're, they're going to get you. Uh, and that, that was a, a tough time. Uh, and, and the smell, uh, you kind of never forget. It, it's funny how that sort of never leaves you. Um, sometimes the sights... Um, get lost in time, um, but but the smell uh, I've I've never forgotten, and and sadly uh, he managed to get to Belfast, but but died uh, a couple of days later. Um, and I suppose, reflecting back now of friends that I, I've lost, um, sorry, I hate that expression. I haven't lost them. I know exactly where they are. Um, friends that have been killed. Um, Looking back now on the boys and girls of my time with Help Heroes, many of them would have survived um, because, you know, medical science, um, defense medical, helicopters, you know, even the training of the boys and girls um, it is, is vast. And so many of them, I guess, would have survived. Um, but I guess that's true of, of any time, any conflict um, as time passes. So, yeah, Cross McGlenn was... Um, an interesting place. Uh, you lived in what they call submarines. Um, yeah. They were literally stacked on top of each other. Uh, I think the whole platoon were in, in one sub um, and you just hot bedded for, for eight months. Um, you know, I suppose looking back, there was no such thing as Gore-Tex. There was none of this fun webbing and, and, and keeping dry. You just went out into South Armagh and if the Wessex... Um, didn't come and get you or, or, you know, occasionally the Navy had lynxes out there because they were the only ones with radar uh, that could get into Besbrook Mill. And then you tabbed it back in. So you got to know um, the feeder roads and the area around Cross McGlenn pretty damn well um, and then went back there a few times. Um, but, yeah, it was it, that, that was the first sort of, you know, moment you thought, blimey, yeah, um, this isn't all good. And you're only 18 at the time as well when all this is going on. That must be very hard to take in as um, such a, a young man. Yeah, well, I mean, it was the same for all of us. Um, and most of us, in, in those days, um, people tended to stay in the army or until they did an operational tour. It, it, it was something, and you would come back from, from tour, uh, and most of the battalion would then say, right, I've done my three years, or, or I'm PVRing, I'm out of here, I've got the medal, I ain't doing that again. Uh, it was only the Muppets that, you know, that stayed in and God, stayed in the <laughs> same battalion uh, for, for about 18 years. Um, uh, yeah, so the battalion turned over pretty quickly after operational tours. I think it was the same for all, all battalions. Um, you know, there were a group of guys and, and entirely understandable who, who went sod that um uh and got out so they had they kind of done the public duties done a bit of germany done the operational tour it, it was i'm out of here what uh, made you want to stay then um 
Well, because it wasn't that difficult. <laughs> it wasn't that hard. I um, uh, and probably it wasn't that hard, and, and probably couldn't be asked to get out. Uh, I, I think um, I I got married in eighty. I've got to be careful because my wife might listen to this. So I got married when we were in Hounslow in in eighty three. Still married. Um, I think my marriage has survived because of the fact that I wasn't there most of the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I think I think it, I've, I found something that I could do. Um, and they seemed to think I was pretty good at it. Um, it didn't really test me uh, to utter limit. I, I, I didn't have a problem with it. I've moved into the admin side uh, of life because I was one of the few guardsmen that could read and write. Um, (laughs) So there was enough to tax your brain and remain operational. And it was the operation side Mm. uh, that that I actually enjoyed as opposed to paper shuffling. Mm. Um, And and I, I found that you could do operational paperwork and that that was so what you did mattered as opposed to being stuck in the Ministry of Defence, turning out DCIs. Um, so that that's kind of where I, I stayed. Um, mm. I was fortunate enough um, to get posted um, first time as a Lance Corporal to the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe shape, or in those days it was known as Super Holiday at Public Expense. <laughs> um, uh, I've, I've got to ask why it was called that <laughs> well because uh, again in, in the early 80s Alex the, the whole ethos of, of everything with the exception of, of Northern Ireland and of course we had done the Falklands but with the exception of all, military operations was based on the fact that you didn't do anything so you had the Russians on one side and us and the Americans on the other side and don't do anything. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the way you kept the peace. Um, there were there was very little going on at the time. Um, the Falklands had, had been done. Um, and so it was really back to the to um, South Armagh. Um, and so. We went, we did that again. Then we went off to Germany to Oxford Barracks. Um, This was 87, um, where we were the first battalion to get this new fighting vehicle called Warrior, um, which was an absolute crock. Um, (laughs) uh, The chain gun kept having breech explosions. And I I remember a a company commander, great lad, he was the gunnery officer. Um, so you had all these new terms going on in an infantry battalion of, of gunnery officers and, and things like that. And uh, this gun kept exploding on, on Hona Ranges, funnily enough, Rupert. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. God, bloody place. Um, <laughs> so the first time Grenadier Guards, the commanding officer who, who was then uh, Evelyn Webb Carter, who went on to head um, the Army Benevolent Fund, um and a guy called who was from the SAS came to came back to command the battalion that was fun but that's another story 
Um, <laughs> and, and he said, we're not, we're not shooting this anymore. It, it, it's a dangerous gun. And I've never seen so many helicopters and civil servants and generals in my life. Because clearly, as I understand it now, the contracts said this will work. Uh, and God forbid anybody who says it doesn't work. <laughs> so when the 1st Battalion of Grenadier Guards said, this is a crock, it's not going to work. Uh, but there, <laughs> there was bizarre things with Warrior. I remember the, um, the driver was the only one that could shut the back door um, of, of the vehicle. But, Design floor. <laughs> yeah, but, but he couldn't see at what state people were getting in and out of. And once the door started to close, it closed. So, you know, yeah. when we got to barracks, they actually got a, a pig's leg, put it in this hydraulic door and hit the button. And they go, oh, yeah, there's no safety button, is there, at the back? No, there isn't, mate. And the driver doesn't know who's in, who's half out. And, and as you know, with infanteers, you, you're carrying all this kit uh, and trying to get in and out of vehicles and um, Fred Carno's army. And then at the back on the door, there was the, the boiling vessel. Now, on the 432, the boiling vessel is a wonderful bit of kit, and, and it's ideally situated. But actually, the boiling vessel on, on the back of the warrior was on the on the back door, and that's fine. But when you close the door, you couldn't get your black mug underneath. <laughs> and that that was the biggest design fault never mind about doors closing and guns not working if you couldn't get a brew that's that's ending so um, yeah we were the first ones to get warrior and uh, it was the first time really that there was more of an integrated army um we had a a thing called amy which is the armored infantry manning increment um, and so suddenly we had guys coming from the Irish Guards, Scots Guards, Welsh Guards. Um, and, you know, the first couple of months w was pretty interesting in the mess. Um, but actually it made the battalions far stronger, far better, um, getting different knowledge uh, and working together. Oh, wow. So then... Moving on to that, you said you, you did a three-year tour. Did you? Did, yeah, well, did, I, did I, I hear I, that correctly? Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I, I kind of like. I, we we went back to South Armagh. Oh god, it's too many times. Went back to Besbrook. I guess it must have been ninety-six, something like that. Uh, no, that it was ninety-three. I can't remember. Anyway. Um, that, that that was okay, but then the battalion was posted um, as a whole battalion for a three-year tour in, in Balakinla, um, <laughs> again down in South Armagh, a beautiful place, beautiful place. Um, lovely runs along the beaches, oh, the seals, yeah. you're down by the Moor Mountains, uh, stunning place, stunning place. But there was a, a, a rumour going around that, that Marky Boy was going to be sent back to London and, and sit at some desk job um, in Whitehall. And, and over my dead body, that was not going to happen. <laughs> um, so Marky Boy decided in his infinite wisdom that he would volunteer um, for a three-year tour at Headquarters 3 Brigade, um, which was situated in Porterdown in a porter cabin. Uh, I mean, <laughs> this, this was not brigade headquarters and so I had to come back uh, and tell my wife that we were being posted and that's excellent dear wonderful uh, where are we going um south armagh pardon 
Now, the only time my wife had known about South Armagh is every time I, I packed my kit and headed off for eight months, and we didn't have great times on emergency tours. So to pack up the family and say, well, we're going to South Armagh where all the snipers are and the terrorists are, and it, yep, that's it. You've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly <laughs> where we're going. Um, and so that's where we landed up. Uh, and I have to say, probably the, the best three years of my army career. Oh, wow. Um, it, it, was, it was operational. Um, there were very few brigades that were completely operational at the time. And, and three brigade was, was down in South Armagh. And you were dealing with a lot of fascinating stuff from um, int to special forces. Um, and it was just a fascinating time. Um, you had Drum Cree kicking off, which Scotty will know all about. Um, and met some remarkable people from a lot of different cap badges, uh, which I hadn't served with. So I had been in my battalion for about 18 years, um, never left the battalion, um, but met a whole different cap badges, professionalism, ways of working, learning, and, and it was absolutely fascinating. And I, I loved every minute of it. Um, tough times, um, always, kind of on duty you you had your flap jacket um literally in your porch of your house um and if the call came you just ran out and put your jacket on um daughter's birthdays um she she was born um uh in august but she was i've forgotten uh must have been 10 11 there so all her birthdays in august were obviously in the garage because it always rains in in south <laughs> um, so even you think the height of summer no it was always going to be in in the garage but i i met some wonderful people there and had a great time and then um records office and and scotty alluded to it um earlier phoned up and said where would you like to go well that that's always dangerous i'd learned that lesson <laughs> say nothing and i go no I, i'm not playing that game you you tell me where you want me to go and i'll decide whether i'm going or, or i'm not um, <laughs> and they said no no come on um you know where would you like to go and i thought right okay uh, i was a warrant officer at the time i said i wouldn't mind going back to the supreme headquarters uh in belgium uh, by this time of course bosnia kosovo was kicking up uh, and it was very much um, an operational headquarters, um, but at the next level up. So, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to go from my companies and platoons to, to a battalion level. Uh, I then worked at brigade level uh, for three years operational. I said, right, let, let's go and see what the Supreme Headquarters do of this. Um, so I went to uh, the Supreme Headquarters. I was very fortunate enough. Um, to be sent to a little office called Special Operations, Spec Ops, um, where there was uh, one SAS colonel, me, uh, a special a ranger major, uh, and a ranger um, colonel. Uh, and we ran um, Special Operations from the NATO side. Um, oh, wow. So whether it was the Dutch, uh, the Germans and the British were, were typically the main players in, in special forces. Um, and that was fascinating. Um, 
yeah, just a, a whole different level of, of professionalism. Mm. Um, and, and kind of irrespective of, of, of rank, it, it was about experience. It was about knowledge. And, and um, the Americans aren't very good at that. Um, <laughs> they, they do love a bit of rank. Um, so I used to keep slides <laughs> in my desk drawer. I don't think I'm giving any secrets away because um, where there'd be captain slides and, and major slides and colonel, right? And, and occasionally the boys, sucker, would want briefing. Sorry, the Supreme Allied Commander yeah. or the deputy would want briefing. And, of course, Hereford would send over Sergeant so-and-so or court because they were the best people. They knew what the, you, you can't send a sergeant in. So you would put slides on to go, right, you're, you're now Colonel so-and-so. And they go, hi, <laughs> Colonel, good to see you. Thanks, sir. And they go, yeah, whatever, mate. <laughs> um, um, so extraordinary times. Uh, I was very fortunate um, to serve with, with three um, extraordinary, extraordinary colonels. Um, all of them had that Hereford ethos utterly calm utterly professional thoroughly amusing um never never flapped um and if they got grizzly then um whoever they got grizzly with needed to stand by but um, <laughs> yeah i i had the most wonderful time um with them uh and then for some inexplicable reason promotion came around and they decided that i should be a a, a wo1 um, and they sent me down the road to become the family's officer um, <laughs> and staff assistant of, of the support unit at the Supreme Headquarters. <laughs> um, so I'd gone from special operations to look after families and and, uh, and staff assistant to the UK contingent out, out in uh, Belgium. What a change that is. That is a completely yeah, different <laughs> Family's officer was far harder. Far harder. <laughs> far harder than Free Brigade. Far harder than Cross McGlenn. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I think the army is, you know, uh, sorry, the armed forces are a whole lot better now. But I, I used to get very angry about how our families were treated. Um, uh, you know, I've had you know, wives coming in and putting their 18-month-old baby in my in-tray and saying, you look after it. You know? <laughs> um, um, I'd say they were extraordinary times. Um, I, I kind of loved every minute because I could go around irritating people with the authority of the family's officer um, and say, you know, this needs to be done, uh, you know, regularly going into the commanding officer, you need to sort this. Um, and I had great fun because everybody was scared of the families. Um, and I had the families backing, so therefore I was all powerful. Um, but it, it was great times. And, and again, you know, that learning experience uh, that you would just never get, I guess, in, in civilian street. But um, we did a lot of good work um, in the family's office. New ideas were coming in. Uh, you know, then you used to have, you still had Safa sisters. Um, um, and the whole community, I always remember, and it, it's it's something. I went to a Safa meeting, and, and the Safa meetings were always, 
chaired by the senior military person's wife. Um, and it, it was all full of colonels' wives and, and jolly good and absolutely wonderful. Um, so I turned up, all right, I'm going to one of these and you can't stop me. So I went to this admiral's house um, in the middle of the night. Yeah, I mean, mansion. And uh, about 15 ladies there. And um, I've never forgotten it. Um, and it, it was said by the chair. Right. Um, now, this is what we'll do. And uh, the unit will do this and, and the commanding officer will do that. Uh, and I sort of coughed. Uh, and she went, yes, Mark, you know, is the problem. I, so I, I looked down at my badge of rank and my, my uniform and I said, I, I think you'll find I'm the only one here wearing a uniform. Uh, and this committee certainly does not tell the commanding officer what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> that went down like a treat. Um, but funnily enough, um, that single incident um, led to a job when, when I, I got out. And uh, But that's, that's kind of the end of the military bit, I guess. So what made you want to leave then? It sounds like you were having a good time. It sounds like you know, I the was, past six years I, sounded like they were great for you. I think the, if I'm honest, the, the army w was changing. Um, I think all soldiers, sailors and airmen probably go through the angry, frustrated, annoyed with the system. Um, I kind of got through that. I just had enough. Um, and bizarrely, uh, this is where it comes. I got a call in my office. I was sat there from a guy who was a, a colonel in the Colstering Guards. And, and, oh, Mr. Elliot, you know, it's former colonel. You you won't know me. And I thought, I do know you. <laughs> you were the chief of staff in, in, in London District. And, <laughs> I mean, just so wonderfully, typically, guards officer. Um, and I can say that because there's, there's a bit to add. So, anyway, he said, you know, we know about you. We're starting a company to, to build an insurance company uh, to help members of the armed forces. And we've heard about you and we'd like to offer you a job. Uh, yeah, fine. Um, he said, well, have a think about it. I'll give you a call back. So I put the phone down and went, you know, not a chance. You know, who, you know, you just don't get phoned up and offered this. Um, so never thought anything of it. Anyway, three three weeks later, he phoned back. And he said, right, you know, I'm offering him this job. And I go, right, okay. Let's throw as many spanners in the work as I can here. Let's test the system. <laughs> and I said, well, that's fine. You know, you'll need to fly, fly me back to the UK. And, you know, I said, if I'm getting out, I, I, I need to bring my wife so she knows what's, what's going on. Absolutely no problem. I went, blimey. <laughs> I've never forgotten it, never forgotten it. So we flew back and, and we had this meeting in the Horse Guards Hotel um, just down the road from, from the Ministry of Defence. And um, very nice. And, and I asked all the awkward questions that I could because, frankly, I, you know, it wasn't going to happen. Anyway, um, he said, right, you know, that's the end. Great to meet you, Mark and, and Claire and blah, blah, blah. Uh, how much do we owe you? And I said, well, you know, the flights were this. And I said, I'm really sorry. I, I've had to get a, a taxi um, because I couldn't get and blah, blah, blah. He said, well, that's absolutely no problem. Anyway, he, he reached down, got his checkbook out, you see, <laughs> uh, and made out a check to what I said. 
Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I played the game. Uh, and when we were outside, my wife turned around and said, what are you doing? Hmm. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm getting out. And she said, pardon? I said, I'm getting out. That's the first time ever in my life I've told somebody and they just got the checkbook and wrote. <laughs> if, if they can do that, I'm getting out. Um, so went back. Uh, I've very kindly been offered um, or recommended and offered a, a, a commission. Um, and kind of said, no, it, it's not for me. Uh, I got hauled up to Germany, to the GOC in Germany going, Mark, what are you doing? And I go, I've had it, Jen. And he went, but you'll be commissioned and this is great. And, and I went, I know I should do, you know, to be commissioned um, from guardsmen and then be commissioned should be every soldier, sailor and airman's ultimate ambition. And, you know, very few get to do it. Um, but I got to the stage where I, I wasn't angry, frustrated, annoyed, or, or I just didn't understand what they were talking about anymore. Mm. It was just gobbledygook. Um, and so I thought, right, you know, let, let's part as, as friends. Um, and so we were out in Germany, uh, sorry, out in Belgium, uh, got posted back uh, to Andover, um, which was then DLO, I think, uh, Defence mm. Logistics. Um, to which walked in, uh, <laughs> the commanding officer there said, oh, Mr. Elliot, so last six months in the UK, um, you know, this is what I, I said, look, let's be honest. I don't want you and, and you really don't want me. Um, you know, I'm just going to get in your way and be annoying and, and you don't want that. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just disappear and that'll be fine. Well, what about resettlement? Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Well, you've got to go and see this retired officer and, and he signs your form. Yeah, all right, okay. So I walked into this office and this retired officer, never forgotten, had dirty shoes, so that annoyed me. Um, <laughs> and he did, right, you know, the all the usual spiel, the grass isn't always greener on the other side, Mr. And I go, well, what have you done? And he went, pardon? <laughs> I said, well, you know, what, what do you know of starting a business and, and running a business? Well, I don't know. I said, well, let you, you sign there. And that's, it. <laughs> um, and that's exactly what I did. I, I walked out the door. Uh, I handed in my ID card. I didn't do resettlement. Um, and I started my new job um, building uh, an insurance company to help members of the armed forces. Oh, wow. That's um, brilliant. Well, it, yeah, other than sort of having arrived back and sort of left these shores, or I suppose... You know, as as you guys all know, you, you're kind of lifted. In in my case, I, I was lifted from the real world into this military world at 16. And then at 41, um, I, I went back to it. And they go, right, so how do you buy a house? Well, you just walk in and go, I'll have that one. Pardon? Well, that's how you do it. I, I've no idea. So I, I'd never voted because uh, I, I kind of didn't have credit. Um I passed my driving test in, in 85, but then driven mostly abroad. Um, I lived in Northern Ireland um, and then Belgium. So I hadn't been resident in the UK for about six, seven years. Um, <laughs> people go, where you been? <laughs> I've been in the military. 
uh, and and you just knew nothing. Um, you know, I guess I suppose it could be thrown back. Well, perhaps Mark, if you had done a proper resettlement, you might have found yeah. out all about this, but, <laughs> but, but I didn't. Um, and so it was an extraordinary time. Um, yeah, it, it, it was it was it was fascinating um, to really start off and, and, and build a company, which is what we did. Even even with the massive culture shock of you know going onto a city street. Yeah, I mean, I think, funnily enough, you know, startups and, and you know, building companies is, is what I guess I've been doing it for the past, blimey, uh, well, since I left, so tw 20-something years now. Um, so from an insurance company, uh, built it, to then I built a countryside organisation, um, basically because I wanted to go out in the countryside and I thought the rest were idiots. Um, <laughs> uh, and then help started building a military charity pretty much for the same reasons. Um, you find out that building a company, there's so many similarities between, you know, getting your section or your platoon or your company to do something that they really don't want to do hmm. or are struggling with, um, whether it's the leadership skills, the communication skills, all that unbeknownst to, to you, you, you've got but no one knows it. I always say that the problem for the boys and girls is, is they don't know what they know. Um, and and every, it doesn't translate until you suddenly say, and I remember saying, you know, years ago in the tin hut to some of the boys, say, right, if I go out, if I say to you, right, go and clear that car park out of there, what will you do? They said, well, we'll go and clear the car park. They go, all right, off you go. So and as they walk out the door, you go, what are you going to do? Well, how do you know what to do? And they go, well, we just know it. Now, what they mean, they would have gone to the to the owners and they would have spoken to them and they found a way, but but they know stuff. And, and that's certainly what you find when you're building a new company. Um, and you can do things different. You have you have a freedom to get things right mm. um, or right as you see it, shall we mm. say. Um, and everything that you've learned that you remember from the idiots you've met to, to the stuff that you've read that makes absolutely no sense. You, you always have in your head that, that I'm never going to do that. Clearly, you probably do. Um, but it's a wonderful freedom um, to start companies with a vision and a passion um, and use the skills that perhaps you didn't know you had, but but most servicemen and women do. Yeah. So what made you then um, start with um, Help for Heroes? Well, how, how did that kind well, of... Well, entirely, I'd, I had eventually headed up this insurance company of, of which I know nothing about insurance. Um, but you, you don't need to know anything about insurance. That's what you get experts in for. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'd started a, a countryside organisation um, called Nobs. Um, which was the national organization for beaters and pickers up, you see, because I, I wanted to go out with my dogs and, and I, I found, it, <laughs> found it really hard to go and do. So I, I created the organization. Um, and it was through that that um, I came to find out more about the genius that that is Brim Parry. Um, I'm talking about his drawings, by the way, at the moment, just in case he's listening uh, <laughs> or he might do. Um 
And so I got to know Bryn through the countryside and he did some drawings for me for my organization. And I've been to a, a gun dog show um, in Oxford um, and I'd seen uh, a demonstration by a charity called Canine Partners. Uh, and they train dogs for the disabled. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, you know, Labradors learning to switch off lights, switch on lights. They can take washing out of the machine. And I thought, you know, my dogs can barely pick up a pheasant and, and then I'm chasing <laughs> after them. Um, so for some reason, I went up to this guy and I said, look, you, you don't know me, but I think what you do is incredible. I'll run a marathon for you uh, and try and raise you 500 quid. Uh, and at the time I, I was running a fair bit. And he went, yeah, great, super, thanks very much. Um, and I got back and I thought, right, how do you raise 500 quid? Um, so you, you bang out an email to, to friends and people you know, and, and I got a response from Emma, Emma Parry, Bryn's wife. Uh, and she said, I'll give you 20 quid um, if you help us start an organisation to help wounded, sick and injured servicemen. Um, and with your background, um, we need you aboard, to which I went, can't be that hard, can it? You know, groups get together, raise 10,000 quid, tick. Um, mm. And that's, as they say, <laughs> how it started. Uh, having said <laughs> yes, I think it took about probably under 12 hours before Bryn was sending me op plans, um, <laughs> everything you know names and, and what we were going to do and how we were going to do it uh and it literally just went from i think we always said our first email together was 16th of july 2007 mm -hmm. and then we actually launched help for heroes um first of october 2007 but that summer of 07 was just Phonetic. I mean, it just Hectic. everything. Went. I mean, there was, you know, <laughs> Richard Dannett, who was then professional head of the British Army, getting involved. There, there were generals, there were lords, there were name changes. Um, but it, it was it was another wonderful opportunity um, oh, to have that experience and knowledge and start something new and exciting that had never been done before in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to challenge um, the current or the, the then current thinking, because it, it simply at the time wasn't good enough, having spent quite a bit of time up, up at Selly Oak where the boys were being flown. Um, so that's what we did. Ah, oh, brilliant. Well, I've asked a lot of questions, as I always do during these things. I will go and open the floor up to, I know Scotty's got some questions. Then I'll go over to Rupert. Um, Scotty, the floor. Yes, it's slightly worrying seeing Scotty with his phone out. Yeah, that's always that's always worrying right there. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, Mark, these are probably some of the most important questions you've ever been asked. Go and for I know it. that you uh, were a uh, guardsman, so I'll start with the easiest one first. So, Alex, <laughs> a minute, please, young man. Can you um, let me know? If we can. Brilliant. Actually, okay, name. <laughs> Mark Elliott. Well done, Neil. A bit of a pause there. Good. Excellent. Good answer. Yeah. How long can you hold your breath for? 
As long as the sergeant tells me to. Excellent. Good. Do you believe in feet? I didn't, but I do now. But only you... when it's good. Good. <laughs> if you had all the power in the world, what would you implement? Uh, lockdown around my house. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever worn socks with sandals? Now, you were in Germany. No. Never. <laughs> what does a person need to be happy? Themselves. Good answer. What's the best age? The one I'm at at the moment. These are fast. Is double dipping at a party ever acceptable? Always. Oh, is it? Oh, there you are. Would you like to live forever? Depends what I'm doing. All right. (laughs) That's brilliant. And I'm sure now the listeners have a better idea of who the living legend Mark Elliott is. Hey. <laughs> and, um, decided that he's not a living legend. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, too, I can just only say, yeah, on behalf of Joanna and I, just say thanks very much for all the work that, that you've done. Oh, yes. fantastic. Rupert, you're up next with the questions. Yeah, well, we've, we've had the privilege of doing some work with um, Band of Brothers and Band of Sisters, uh, really helping the family side of that. Uh, and what I was interested in, um, having served in Ballykindler and places like that, where your your small kids are there with the mirror on a stick, searching the yeah. underside of the car to make sure there's not a bomb on it, which was sort of second nature. Uh, yeah. And my wife, when she wasn't um, with child, as it were, being able to do press ups to have a look in the sort of local car park just to make sure uh, there wasn't anything put on whilst we were getting our messages and stuff. Um, So actually putting your family into um, arm after three years, uh, that that must have been quite challenging. So so it was really about the family's aspect. How did they adapt? It was... um... I mean, you're right. It, it wasn't it wasn't an easy conversation to start with, but actually, in in Machen Barracks in Porterdown, um, I've forgotten how many quarters there were, but let let's say there were were seventy quarters there, Rupert, um, all from um, all ranks, um, you know, from the brigade commander, you're you're behind a a forty foot wire fence uh, guarded um completely um the houses were fairly new some of the best quarters we've actually been in um actually so that that was pleasant um and i guess like rather like battalions do when they when they're operational um the family side of it came together um yeah they, you know, all the kids were in the same boat. Uh, some kids uh, went to boarding school if they were too old. The, the schools in Porterdown were fine for the youngsters. But once they got sort of 13, 14, most of them went to boarding school. Um, so actually, you were kind of locked in and the families dealt with it extremely well. Um, the thing, I suppose, that was different from an emergency tour or up banner to a three-year tour was at the weekend route but you you would drive out and and drive to the moor mountains or down to the lakes or or glen Arif. um i mean and just explore a wonderful country um but you knew where to go and where not to go mm. um 
you know, and, and that was the case. So the families did did very well. They came together far far more because I guess in the UK, normally they, they all go home at weekends and and there's they're all spread. Um, whereas there, you ain't going nowhere mm. <laughs> unless it was to Lisbon to the MNS. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I've been there a few times. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. And and the other the other thing was um, transition, really, because I think um, we deal with a lot of families who struggle with transition. And I know from my experience, um, what I hadn't appreciated because I got too focused on you know getting my new job and and it was all about me. Yeah, and uh, I think a lot of soldiers do that, but actually. The family were quite surprised because suddenly their identity had changed as well. And they were no longer part of that family group that had formed, you know, in Ireland or uh, with the regiment. And all those people had gone and suddenly they were somewhere else surrounded by people who didn't get why they were still looking under the car at a habit, you know. Yeah, um, I think that's, I mean, that's absolutely fair. And, you know, I think like anything, some transition better than others um i think we were fairly fortunate I, my wife i'm sure would disagree because having <laughs> got back to the uk one of the things we did was set up a, a, a call center um in colchester and um so i was gone most of the week so having brought this gal to her, right bye um so my, my world hadn't changed too much um but i think you're absolutely right i think a, a lot struggle with it um particularly if you've been in, in a long time i think probably you know i don't know it, it's better now um battalions seem to be uh, more stable doing sort of six eight year tours in a location um, whereas you know you and i were doing 18 months three years um, mm. and so you moved around the world pretty quickly and and you know i'm not saying it was rather like the battle of waterloo but you know the, the whole battalion their wives and their kids were picked up moved dumped picked up moved dumped and that was kind of it um mm. You know, there weren't the communications of emails, mobile phones. That that didn't happen. Uh, the battalion's families and and its soldiers uh, were it, and it, it moved as an entity. Uh, nowadays, um, I, I hopefully it's a it's a great deal better, and there's more stability um, for families, um, particularly wives or the member of the family that's not in, to have a a job and a career um, with some sort of stability. Uh, the Navy kind of always had it, um, the RAF to a degree, um, but certainly as an infantry battalion, forget it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, when you were the uh, families officer, what was the most, what was the biggest surprise for you when you, when you started well, doing that role? Surprise, I think the biggest surprise I had, Alex, was that the Navy and the Air Force don't do as they're told. I mean, <laughs> extraordinary. I mean, I assumed as a, as a warrant officer class one that when I said something, that was it. Uh, and to have a corporal in the RF go, well, I'm not sure I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was the first moment that I sort of braced myself back to six foot four and, and stuck my chest out and I went, pardon? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I might be there. What? What? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't. It was all of that. It, it was then realizing that because I, you know, uh, 
as Scotty alluded to um, and Rupert, if I barked an order, uh, I was fairly used to people shifting. <laughs> uh, and then suddenly, when you're dealing with other services um, and families, apparently they don't, and, no. and they don't. They don't often take kindly to it. So you learn to adapt pretty damn quickly. <laughs> um, it wasn't hard, but it was certainly a shock. <laughs> I naturally assume you told people what to do, and they went and did it. I mean, I'm not that hard. I think from listening to Scotty talk, I don't yeah. believe that for a second. I yeah. think when someone went and when gave Scotty an order, I don't reckon Scotty did it straight away. <laughs> well, yeah, but there were, there were ways. If Scotty didn't do it, there were ways and means of making sure that he did do it. Uh, <laughs> but that's, I said, Alex, back in the back when I first joined up, definitely we we had a, a regimental sergeant major W one, and he was about the same height and stature as Mark, and you used to hear the ammo boots coming yeah, up towards yeah, yeah. the equal parts. Well, if I could have put a brush up my bum, I had a brush, yeah. a paintbrush, <laughs> or something else, I was trying to talk, please don't look at me, don't look at me, don't look at me. This was the scariest man you would ever meet. And I remember when he got commissioned, he went into the family's office, yeah. and he was a family's officer. And he was kind of, I think it was about three weeks and then he was removed from post because he was making the wives march into his office, which I thought was highly amusing. Um, yeah, no, thankfully, I, I, I never made that mistake. I, you know, I, I was probably more terrified of, of, of the wives and the families. Uh, I must have always did as I was told, um, to a degree. And then when I got a couple of ranks on my arm, then you can kind of bend them and stretch them a little bit. That's um, the Sc Scotty I know. That's the Scotty I know. Yeah, here we go. That's more well, like I think it. we all did, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think yeah. I, I can. the only advantage I could think of being uh, promoted to WO1 is, is that when this scrotty little PTI in their flash kit going, right, sir, you've got to do this, I remember turning around, which was probably pretty naughty of me going, don't think you find I have to. <laughs> and he, he looked at me and said, nah. <laughs> it, it was all well worth it then. Oh, yeah. well, it, sounds like you, it sounds like you had a lot of fun as well as that. So I'm going to ask you to pinpoint, it's a hard question, what is your favourite moment, Mark, in your military career from all that 25 years? I want a, I want a specific moment. You can't go and go, oh, well, these past three years were amazing. <laughs> um... It was being at home in Belgium, I mean, for bizarre moments. Am I allowed bizarre moments? Of course, um, of course. And the operations officer from Spec Ops office was on duty, and he phoned me up and said, Mr. Elliot, you need to come in. Um, one of our, our planes has gone down. And he went, which one? And he said, well, one of the stealth bombers. I went, uh, yeah. oh, they, they've hit your stealth bomber. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, we, we've got to go, and, and it's called search and rescue. So anyway, I said, well, you better send a car. Uh, <laughs> said, so what shall I do? I said, well, first thing to do is put the kettle on. Then we'll work it out. <laughs> so anyway, I sent a car, went in. Right, where is he? We, we had had a signal that the pilot was, was okay. Um, this was in the middle of Bosnia, Kosovo. And... Um, he said, well, the, the two-star wants briefing, and, you know, oh, don't worry, leave it with me. I'll go and do it. Uh, wandered in, briefed this two-star, and the wonderful thing about Spec Ops is you don't have to say anything. 
because you go, oh, I'm really sorry, sir. You know, leave it with us. We'll get it sorted. Uh, and he can't <laughs> ask anything, uh, which was just as well because we had absolutely no idea what we we're doing. Uh, <laughs> so a phone call went back to to Hereford and, and through the chains, and the boys went and got the pilot. Um, and by the next morning, it was all all sorted. But I think it's bizarre moments. This poor major ops officer panicking because <laughs> the Yanks had had a stealth bomber hit, um, and then going. I think to... that was a. I think that was a, an F one one seven. I believe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was. It was just you know one of those moments. You go, pum. <laughs> like, <laughs> how are we going to get out of this? You know, and I, I've been to, in some scrapes in the naffy in my time, but um, you're thinking, right? You've got to think on your feet here. Uh, you should have went. You should have went. Stealth isn't the word yeah, yeah, yeah. stealth for yeah. a reason. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> well, needless to say, you know, the, the story is slightly longer with with the giggles that we had in the office again. Not believe what they've done. I was, I was going to go and say, how do you hit a stealth bomber? Well, well I mean, by yeah. luck, I'm, assu I'm assuming by luck. I'm assuming they were aiming well, for something else, or it wasn't oh. that stealth. They're they're, uh, they're very proud of it. You can still. Yeah. I was there a couple of years ago, and you can still buy postcards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The damn plane with. <laughs> I mean, because, <laughs> the, um, because the, it all ended well, it, it 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 was a funny story. The actual missile systems um, was fantastic that they had in the countryside, buried yeah. in, and there was something yeah. to do with radar stations yeah. or something didn't go on in time, which means that they could get a fix onto this aircraft, Absolutely. and that's how it went off, yeah. and then. Yeah, they were needless to say, lucky to get the lucky to get the pilot back. Yeah, it it all ended well. Aye, that, and that's the stories we like. That's a good moment yeah. right there. That's going to be hard to top right there. I don't yes. know what I think. It's cool. <laughs> Thinking on your feet, going, give me a moment. Yeah, I'll get it sorted. <laughs> but actually, you know, those moments happen all the time. You know, whether you're in business, you, the the first IA I always say is is always put the kettle on. You know, we, we, we had some terrible times, you know, with, with Help Heroes, um, you know, uh, where you just had to go, whoa, right, okay, let, let's just stop everything, put the kettle on, and work out what we're going to do. Um, so, yeah, there's there's moments. So, first thing to do, don't panic, put the kettle on, have a cup of tea. That's really good advice. I think that's advice that all our listeners can take there. You know, I mean, yeah. I need, to, I, I'm going to take that advice as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and my final question for you is, what does family mean to you? Oh, everything. Um, I mean, yeah. I, again, I was very fortunate that when my daughter was born, um, then I went away and when I came back, she was walking, then I went away, then she went to school. So uh, my wife and my daughter would say I've had very little experience. Um, but no, they are. Uh, I mean, the, my family, I couldn't have done anything um, without my family. Um, I've had the freedom uh, to help build businesses. Uh, to serve, I was going to say all over the world, but it wasn't <laughs> to serve many years in South Armagh. Um, just over the water. Yeah, just over the water. <laughs> um, no, everything. Well, you know, my wife uh, has to sacrifice a career. Um, we were very fortunate enough. I always used to say the only two things that ever worked in the British Army um, was one was boarding school allowance um, and the other was the compay system. 
Um, and so my daughter benefited from the boarding school when I was uh, in Northern or we were in Northern Ireland and then in, in um, Belgium, um, which allowed my daughter to have a good education um, and then did very well and, and has been in the, uh, was in the Met for 10 years and now is, is Wiltshire and a detective sergeant. So it, it kind of worked. Oh, wow. Um, but um, yeah, no, everything because they, they allow you um, to go and do all this fun stuff um, whilst being able to, to come home um, and through the front door. Even though whenever you came home from tours, the kettle had always changed and the bread bin wasn't <laughs> where the bread bin was. And that's really annoying. <laughs> and the furniture had moved and you go, what's that? And you last about two days, don't you, before they say, when are you going back? <laughs> but no, everything. Oh, absolutely brilliant. Well, this has been a brilliant podcast, Mike. I mean, this is a great way to start 2021. Some you had to think questions. there, didn't you? You yeah, thought, I did, what, I did. What, yeah, what year paused, are we in? I paused and I went, 2021. 20, <laughs> well, guys, thank you very much for today. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, to everyone going and listening, if you can like, share and subscribe to this, make sure to follow Give Us Time on all your social media pages. Um, and thank you so much, Mark. This has been really interesting and a great podcast. Um, so thank you very much. And thank you very much, everyone, for listening. So uh, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>